0: Thank you, Father Michael, and thanks to Father Simon for um, inviting me to deliver this paper. It's been a great conference so far. One of my favorite scenes in Dante's Divine Comedy is in the beginning of the Purgatorio, when Dante and Virgil are standing on the shores of Mount Purgatory after climbing out of the darkness and chaos of hell. They find themselves at daybreak looking across the sea that separates the living from the dead. As the sun rises, Dante sees a ship, swift as a bird, flying toward them across the waters, powered by the the wings of a bright angel at the helm. In contrast to the wails and shrieks of the damned, the souls it carries are singing. In exitu Israel de Egypto, They've been judged worthy of being purified for eternal life. It's the first of many songs we hear in the joyfully penitential soundtrack of purgatory as Dante and Virgil climb with those being cleansed up the mountain, getting lighter as they go, until Dante crosses over into the brighter radiance and even sweeter music of paradise. Dante's image captures well the essence of the doctrine of purgatory, even if he poetically embroiders many of the details. Pope Benedict XVI puts it more succinctly, with reference to Paul's teaching on salvation through fire in 1 Corinthians 3, 12 to 15. The suffering of purgatory is a transforming fire that burns away our dross and reforms us to be vessels of eternal life. The Pope underlines in Salvi that there can be no true hope for eternal life without faith that God will ultimately bring about an undoing of past suffering, a reparation that sets things aright. In Pope Benedict's view, the image of our final judgment by Christ, enfolding within it complete purification from evil, is, quote, the decisive image of hope. For many Catholics today though, teaching on the coming reality of Christ's divine judgment and the transformative purgatorial suffering that it will require in the best case for most of us leads, uh, tends to fall on resistant ears. It seems outmoded at best and hard to reconcile with who Jesus is in the popular imagination. One firm tenet of popular Christology after all is that Jesus does not judge, and he certainly does not want us to suffer. It's not uncommon to hear those who identify as Catholic claim that Christ's gospel teachings of inclusivity and tolerance support and promote the freedom to embrace whatever moral decision each individual feels to be good for themselves, no matter how contrary it may be to church teaching. And where the infallibility of individual choice is celebrated, there can, of course, be no requirement for confirmation to a higher standard of justice, and so no need for ultimate purification in accord with that standard. Although the church is judgmental, the narrative goes, Jesus is not. In fact, the kind of judgmentalism and punitive attitude displayed by the institutional church is exactly what Jesus condemns. I'm happy for Jesus to be my friend, in other words, but not so delighted for Jesus to be my judge. But according to Thomas Aquinas, I should be. In this paper, I will argue that Thomas offers us helpful insight as Christians increasingly allergic to the notion of Christ's eschatological judgment and the consequent necessity for most of us of final purification from evil. Like Pope Benedict, Thomas understands Christ's judgment and the pains of purgatory as bringing about a reparation that sets things right. This healing reparation, as always in Thomas's soteriology, involves the interpersonal cooperation of divine and human freedom in a way that reveals the immensity of the divine goodness. In the wider context of Thomas's teaching on Christ as judge, mediator, and savior, we can understand more deeply how the doctrines of judgment and purgatory, perhaps difficult for modern Christians to engage, might be presented as compelling evidence, as compelling revelations of God's generosity. While these teachings certainly encourage holy fear, They also show positively why we need Christ's wise judgment and, therefore, his gracious gift of purgatory. They reveal the Father's love and so give the most profound reasons to those who really will be the friends of Jesus for gratitude and joyful hope. I have to apologize. I have some vision problems at the moment, so (laughs) I'm having a little trouble reading here. So first, I'm going to start by attempting to diagnose the reason for modern resistance to the Church's teaching on judgment and purification after death more clearly. These two last things have been linked to each other, at least in some form, since the early Church, especially in the West. A full-blown doctrine of purgatory was elaborated in the medieval Latin Church, becoming a point of contention most famously in the Protestant Reformation. For reformers like John Calvin, purgatory must be rejected because of the sole sufficiency of Christ's mediation. Purgatory implies human cooperation in paying the debt of sin, but Calvin argues, quote, the blood of Christ is the only satisfaction, expiation, and purgation for the sins of the faithful, But the reason for modern resistance to the ideas of both judgment and purgatory is I think something like the opposite of Calvin's. That is, concomitant with a diminished sense of the gravity of sin, it stems from an underestimation of Christ's role and an overestimation of our own in salvation. And this mistake, I think, derives even more fundamentally from a flawed Christology. That is, from a deeper level of discomfort with the fundamental Christian claim. We need a mediator. We cannot save ourselves. Christians today can be tempted to reject this need for mediation in favor of a more personalized and self-determined plan of apotheosis in which Jesus plays a significant but supporting role. Sacraments, the Church, the tradition of moral teaching, the notion that one must ultimately be conformed to an external standard of justice, may therefore also become somewhat optional, even for Catholics. As a corollary, any need for penitential purification if one departs from these objective demands also becomes inconsequential. The revealed truth about our dependence on the one divine and human mediator who will come to judge the living and the dead can be perilously neglected under the influence of a culture seeking affirmation of more comfortable truth claims that allow the pursuit of autonomous paths to salvation. This trend in popular Christology, no doubt, reflects a certain Pelagian tendency that is congenial to the self-constructing ideals of postmodern culture. But as the CDF's recent letter Placuit Deo points out, this tendency to neo-Pelagianism goes hand in hand with a neo-gnostic impulse that seeks a merely interior salvation, quote, closed off in subjectivism, disregarding the role of the body and the incarnation itself This trend, I think, finds an unfortunate ally in some contemporary developments in theology. I'm reminded of another quote from Pope Benedict, as Joseph Ratzinger, in his essay, Revelation and Tradition, written in 1966. Ratzinger describes the urgent task of the magisterium to defend the sarks of history that is, the truth of the revelation of the incarnation in scripture, against the caprice of a gnosis which perpetually seeks to establish its own autonomy. A similar concern emerges in Dominus Jesus, published under Ratzinger as head of the CDF. The document was written to counter, quote, relativistic theories which seek to justify religious pluralism not only de facto, but also de jure or in principle. The central concern here is with Christological approaches, such as that of Father Jacques Dupuis or John Hicks, that imply or explicitly posit mediations of salvation alternative to the mystery of the word made flesh and his church. A more recent widespread shift toward contextual theologies in the academy also often involves a critical reevaluation of traditional Christology and eschatology. Some influential feminist theologies, for instance, propose that Jesus is, again, primarily a messenger of divine wisdom, while others reject traditional teaching about the last judgment, and certainly about purgatory and hell as violent and exclusive. These contemporary theologians share a laudable concern to understand God's plan of justice and salvation. Most do not reject the idea that some mediator is necessary, at least as revealer and teacher. Yet the thought of many for the sake of an inclusive pluralism tends towards the notion that this mediator need not be the Word made flesh, who saves and purifies us body and soul. Once such a soteriology filters out into classrooms, parishes, and popular media, it easily allies with the idea that one may pick and choose among ways of accessing the divine, encouraging, perhaps in the name of tolerance and inclusivity, the caprice of a gnosis which seeks to establish its own autonomy Resistance to the idea of Christ's mediation, his judgment, and any need of purification after death might therefore be called a Gnostic move, a search for transcendence that bypasses the Incarnation. Like the Docetists of St. Irenaeus' time or the Cathars of St. Thomas's, Catholics influenced by this Gnostic tendency today may both disregard such embodied means to salvation as church, sacraments, and good moral action, and discount Christ's unique role in his humanity as mediator, savior, judge, and final purifier, perhaps not in principle, but too often de facto. The creedal affirmation that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead is not going away, however, nor, I think, is the church's teaching on purgatory. And so a renewed catechesis on these doctrines seems needed today. I'll begin by considering Thomas' teaching on Christ's judgment, and then look at how that relates to his understanding of purgatory. The kind of judge Christ is, in other words, shapes the meaning of purgatory, the kind of purification that Christ wills and effects in us. I will conclude that Thomas offers us at least three anti-gnostic insights that could be helpful in catechesis today, all rooted in his thoroughly Chalcedonian Christology and hylomorphic anthropology. The first insight concerns why Christ must be our judge and purifier in his humanity. The second has to do with why we need judgment and purgatory in the first place. And the third concerns the nature of purgatory and of the judgment, when he will bring to light what is hidden in darkness, and each one will receive his praise from God. To give a framework for these insights, I will first outline Thomas's teaching on Christ as judge. So Aquinas on Christ as judge. Thomas discusses Christ's judicial power in numerous texts. I will begin with question 59 of the third part of the Summa Theologiae, the final one in Thomas's consideration of the mysteries of Christ's life, those things that were done and suffered by the incarnate word for human salvation. Christ's judgment, then, is the culmination of his salvific activity in his human nature. In the unjust condemnation of the Passion, Christ justly merited Exaltation to resurrection and the power of judgment over all. Christ's judicial power in his humanity is due first and foremost, foremost, however, to the grace of union with the word, and consequently his fullness of habitual grace as head, which gives him the prerogative to bring souls to beatitude. Thomas's account of Christ as judge is therefore anchored in the ontological foundation he has constructed earlier in the of Pars, for the inseparability of Christ's two natures after the union, and the instrumentality of Christ's human nature in his theandric activity. Christ is our judge both as Son of God and as Son of Man. In his divine person as wisdom begotten and truth proceeding from the Father, the Son of God is himself the law of truth or wisdom, on which the very rule of judgment is based. Therefore, judiciary power is properly appropriated to him through whom the Father judges all things. Thomas quotes Augustine, he who alone is truth itself passes judgment on us when we cling to him. Those who cling to him, as well as those who don't, can count on his complete knowledge and just judgment of their deepest intentions, thoughts, and actions. Thomas writes about the perfection of this future divine judgment in his commentary on 1 Corinthians 4, 5, the Lord coming to judgment will will illumine what is concealed in darkness. And he will make manifest the counsels of hearts, that is, all the secrets of the heart. This means both good things and evil things that have not been covered over by penitence. And then each one, namely the good, shall receive his praise from God. This will be true praise, because God can neither deceive nor be deceived. For Thomas, like Augustine, judgment by the one who is himself the very ratio of wisdom and truth ensures The judgment will be without error and absolutely just, because the Lord alone knows the secrets of hearts and the inner truth of each one's conscience. As son of man, Christ in his humanity shares the judiciary power of the word. Indeed, Thomas emphasizes that it is especially through the instrumentality of his humanity that this power is exercised. Quoting John 5, 27, he has given him power to do judgment because he is the son of man. Thomas explains that Christ as human is judge because on account of the union he is head of the body and has the fullness of habitual grace, filling his soul with truth to which judgment belongs. Because of the overflow of the Godhead in Christ's soul, it belongs to him also to know and to judge the secrets of hearts. This grace also fills his soul with perfect charity. Thomas has said earlier in the Summa that right judgment, according to the divine rules, belongs to the gift of wisdom flowing from charity. Christ's preeminent wisdom as judge is founded then in the fullness of both charity and truth giving him the prerogative to order all things in the final disposition of souls according to the divine rule of justice. Thomas gives further reasons in question 59 for why Christ as human has judiciary power that tell, has judiciary power that tells us what kind of judge he is. He is judge in his human nature because of his likeness and kinship with us so that his judgment might be sweeter to us. Here Thomas quotes Hebrews 4.15. We do not have a high priest who cannot have compassion on our infirmities. This verse appears often, where Thomas discusses Christ's judgment. In his commentary on Hebrews, he says, it shows Christ's mercy and tenderness that care for our misery. So no one will believe that he can only do what is demanded by his justice. Christ as our judge is also our priest who intercedes for us and offers himself in sacrifice for us. He eagerly and readily comes to our aid because he knows our misery by experience. In the commentary on John, Thomas explains that the power to judge was given to the Son of Man because this helps to take away the terror of falling into the hands of the living God. In question 59, Thomas draws on Augustine for two other reasons that Christ is judge as human. These have to do with his human body and ours. First, because at the last judgment, God will raise up dead bodies through the Son of Man, just as souls are raised up through Christ as the Son of God. In question 56, on Christ's resurrection, Thomas distinguishes between the primary cause of resurrection, the divine justice, and the secondary, instrumental cause, Christ's resurrection in his own human body, which communicates the life-giving power of the Word. Why is Christ's resurrection as the cause of ours an instrument of divine justice? The answer seems to be that our resurrection at the end of time must take place for the effects of judgment to be complete in us. Although all are individually judged and rewarded or punished immediately after death in their particular judgment, it is only at the last judgment that all will receive the completion of the reward or punishment due in the body as well as the soul. Just as the saints will enjoy the vision of God more when the delight of beatitude overflows into their resurrected bodies, Those in hell will suffer in their bodies what they already suffer in their souls. Thomas argues in his commentary on 1 Corinthians 15 that in addition to the necessity of the reunion of soul and body for the metaphysical completion of human nature, divine justice demands that each will receive back his own identical body so that he will be rewarded or punished in the same body in which he had carried out his good or evil deeds. Thomas explicitly rejects as a fable the Gnostic position condemned at Lateran IV that at the resurrection the soul would be rid of the material body. The resurrection of bodies is caused by the judge because in the resurrection the full effects of judgment are fulfilled in one's own body. Christ will also be judge in his human body at the Last Judgment, because both good and wicked must see their judge. He explains in his Commentary on John that the wicked cannot see Christ in his divinity, because this vision is beatitude. Only the good will see him in both his divinity and his humanity. The sight of his glorified human body, displaying the signs of his passion, will be a reward to his friends, the righteous, but a torment to those who hate him. Sinners who have scorned him will be filled with dismay at the sight. The wicked are dismayed by being unavoidably confronted with the bodily evidence of the salvation they have rejected a truth that stares them in the face, as it were, and declares their culpability. For Thomas, there is no bypassing embodied human nature in judgment, whether that of the incarnate word or our own. The sight of Christ in his glorified humanity will elicit a final crisis of recognition by those who have been admitted to or excluded from beatitude, the with their own co- cooperation. Purgatory, the gift of final confirmation to Christ. In between the particular and last judgments, divine justice mercifully works its penultimate and most perfecting gift in saved sinners not yet ready for beatitude. Thomas's teaching on Purgatory, drawing much from Augustine and Gregory the Great, was also shaped by the polemical context of debate with Eastern Christians. By the 1230s, disagreements about the possibility and nature of purification after death had surfaced between Latins and Greeks, with debate not only about whether such purification is possible, but when, and especially whether it involves suffering by corporeal fire, as 1 Corinthians 3 seems to reveal. Thomas's writings on purgatory address these questions. But he also consistently places them into the soteriological context of divine justice and mercy for the weak but chosen soul who is a member of Christ's body the church. For Thomas, purgatory is personal, but it is also ecclesial. It is painful, but liberating. Most importantly, it is perfecting, totally conforming the soul to Christ in preparation for glory and final resurrection. Among his writings on purgatory, Thomas's commentary on 1 Corinthians 3 especially especially brings out its Christological basis and also underlines how purgatory manifests Christ's judgment. As the Apostle says in 1 Corinthians 3, everyone will receive his own reward according to his own labor, but each builds on a foundation which is Christ Jesus. Christ is the bedrock, Thomas says, on which the apostles are built in faith and charity as the foundation of the church. Those who have faith formed by charity are founded on Christ because he dwells in them. And so they can build a superstructure of spiritual works or good teaching that lasts for eternal life, works of gold, silver, and precious stones, works directed to temporal concerns of wood, hay, and stubble, will be burned away by fire, leaving the good standing, as long as temporal concerns have not turned one completely away from God. Only workers building on Christ and so belonging to his church, that is those in whom Christ dwells, can be purified in this way. The wood, hay, and stubble are their venial sins, arising from attachments to temporal things that impeded the exercise of charity. Any remaining temporal debt of punishment for forgiven mortal sins is also paid in purgatory. Referring to 1 Corinthians 3.13, Thomas explains that this revelation and testing of everyone's works by fire will be manifested on the day of the Lord. This day, he says, is the Lord's judgment when his will is accomplished in regard to men who are rewarded or punished according to his justice. Purgatory follows from judgment, and so is revelatory of God's will and ours. It will reveal Christ's justice and mercy as judge, accomplishing his will for those whose own will has been shown by his judgment to be fundamentally good. The day of the Lord refers to all times of judgment when the good are proven by the fire of affliction. The day of the Lord in our particular judgment is the day of our death, and this judgment will be revealed in the fire of purgatory, by which the elect will be cleansed, if any need cleansing. So that with their imperfections burnt away, they will be saved, but as by fire. Purgatory, as the effect of judgment then, is both profoundly personal, healing every secret fault that has been revealed, and also ecclesial, finally freeing a member of Christ's body in whom he dwells, who is still bound by the effects of sin. Thomas often calls on the Church's practice of prayer for the dead as authority for this doctrine. His teaching on suffrages follows from this ecclesial understanding that those in purgatory are members of Christ's body, united to the living by the bond of charity. They can no longer merit to diminish their debt of punishment because the will separated from the body is immutable. Their wills are fixed in charity, though, and so unlike the reprobate, their punishment is undergone willingly. The will of a soul in purgatory is not paralyzed, but its action is voluntary only in the sense that it patiently endures punishment for a good that cannot be gained otherwise friends, though, with whom souls are united in will by the union of love, can offer prayers and satisfaction for them, and this accords with the order of justice, because a friend is, in a sense, another self. The suffrages of the living cannot change the judgment of the dead as to their final state, but can diminish the punishment that the elect must suffer in their purification. Thomas remarks in his commentary on the creed, that just as Christ descended into the underworld to rescue his friends in bondage, so we should rescue our friends in purgatory with masses, prayers, and almsgiving. The Eucharist especially, in which Christ's own sacrifice is offered for the forgiveness of sins, can satisfy on behalf of those for whom it is offered. As Christ's sacrifice was satisfactory for his members because of the charity with which he offered it, So the Eucharist, the sacrament of charity and ecclesial unity containing the sacrifice Christ himself is preeminently satisfactory in being offered for the dead who are joined to him by the union of love. The purpose of suffering in purgatory is to restore the soul to the order of justice in which, quote, it is due to God that there should be fulfilled in creatures what his will and wisdom require and what manifests his goodness. To manifest God's goodness fully in glory, the soul must be free of all debt of punishment and all impediments to the exercise of charity, making it fit and able to enjoy beatitude. Purgatory is therefore painful but liberating. Because souls have charity, the suffering they endure is cleansing. Thomas argues that this suffering involves both the pain of loss, or delay, and more problematically, the pain of sense. The pain of loss is easier to understand. These souls love God and know that they suffer through their own fault what separates them from him. What they could, in fact, have avoided by enough love and penance in this life. Thomas calls this the pain of damning, yet it is not the same as the pain of the damned who have lost God forever. The pain of loss for souls in purgatory is the pain of sorrow for sin and longing in hope for the delayed but certain future good of glory, neither of which the damned have. This pain is arguably even greater for those in purgatory than for the damned because it would be all the more intense in proportion to their charity, desire, and nearness to their goal. Thomas agrees with the mainstream Latin tradition before him, contrary to the Greeks, that those in purgatory and hell also suffer the pain of sense in corporeal, not metaphorical, fire. This is a position hard to to explain for separated souls. His solution is to propose a meaning of passio, analogous to corporeal suffering, that of being acted upon by being impeded. The soul suffers from corporeal fire in the sense of being, quote, obstructed in its proper activity or kept from something which belongs to it, corporeal fire touching it by contact of a power that it has as an instrument of divine justice. This does not exactly capture the idea of burning, but is more like a burden or a restriction. One may not find this explanation completely satisfying, but I think it does show Thomas's commitment to the consequences of natural hylomorphism for the separated soul as a substantial form of a body. In the Summa Contra Gentilis, Thomas explains that although it is, na- that it is natural to the human soul to be united to its own body, it is contrary to it to be in bondage to a body to which it is not naturally united. And because the sin arose from disordered attachment in the body to inferior bodily things, it is fitting that punishment involves subjection to them. I want to briefly note a contrast here with the difficulties raised for a genuine hylomorphic anthropology by some recent theologians, like Karl Rahner, who questioned the possibility of an interim state for separated souls between death and final resurrection. The ITC's 1992 letter on current questions in eschatology was especially concerned with those who proposed a theory of resurrection in death, rejecting the idea of a separated soul after death that maintains the identity of the person through to the final resurrection in its same body that died. Instead, according to this theory, the soul's new and immediately resurrected body would be entirely different from the corpse in the grave. Ratzinger argues that the thesis of resurrection and death dematerializes the resurrection. I would say it also does away with the problem of how purification relates to the body and the body to personal identity by getting rid of the body altogether. It is in effect a kind of neo-Gnosticism. As the ITC document points out, rejection of the intermediate state departs from Christian anthropology and the Lexarandi of prayers for the dead, confuses the doctrine of purgatory and disconnects the resurrection of believers from Christ's return in glory. For Thomas, punishment of the soul separated from its body heals its history of disordered attachments in that body. By subjection or restriction, in some sense, by something corporeal, medicinal correction is applied by a kind of divine homeopathy to free the soul from the burden of those attachments, purifying it, disciplining it, and rightly ordering it so it can reanimate its body more perfectly and exercise its love entirely towards God. Purgatorial punishment is corrective because it elicits the fervor of charity in the soul. Inordinate attachment to temporal things has diminished the fervor of charity's act, impeding the exercise of habitual love of God. Fervent acts of charity counteract this attachment. Patiently bearing with punishment or suffering for God's sake in purgatory or on earth is an act of fervent charity and penance that especially works to remove the impediment of inordinate attachment to temporal things, allowing the soul to act with the obedience it truly wants to offer once it is set free. Although Thomas doesn't mention it that I could find, in these souls with charity, the gifts of the Holy Spirit would also be operating, especially, perhaps, the gifts of fortitude, piety, and filial fear, Bearing the fruits of the Holy Spirit, such as patience and long suffering. The soul in purgatory, helped by the gifts to cooperate gladly with the divine will, although it cannot merit any diminishment of punishment, can, by its patient and loving suffering, be freed from attachment to sin and repay its debt, obtaining the forgiveness it has always desired. Unlike some of his contemporaries, Thomas thinks that both the punishment and the guilt of venial sins can be forgiven in purgatory by fervent love of God. And this could happen, he gives an example, for instance, for a man who has committed only a venial sin, who falls asleep without an act of contrition because he is thinking instead about how a triangle has three angles equal to two right angles, and in this thought, he falls asleep and dies. So now we know what Thomas did to get to sleep at night. <laughs> uh, as Father Robert Ombres notes, Thomas's teaching on purgatory shows a certain humanness and generosity. seen in his insistence, for instance, that these punishments are not inflicted by demons, but by divine justice alone. The punishments of purgatory manifest God's merciful goodness by returning the soul to the order of justice and so removing the obstacle to receive the light of glory and share the splendor of the word. Purgatorial suffering makes the soul in whom the Trinity already dwells capable of receiving this light and directing its powers to God with full force, completing its deifying perfection to the divine image in act, and so conforming it totally to Christ as an adopted child of God, ready to receive his inheritance. This suffering, therefore, prepares the soul to animate its glorified body in the resurrection. Purgatory, as the manifestation of Christ's particular judgment, is the last step before that final completion of his work as mediator in saved sinners, begun in them by grace. The same Christ, who is our mediator as infallible judge and merciful high priest, is the exemplar to whom the suffering of purgatory finally conforms us, so that we can attain the vision and enjoyment in him and with him of the Father. So the last part of my paper, I'm going to turn to the three ways in which Thomas's account of judgment and purgatory might be helpful for a renewed catechesis. First. Thomas's explanation of why Christ must be our judge in his humanity is not only thoroughly Chalcedonian, but therefore I think offers a helpful clarification that the primary purpose of this judgment is not punitive, but salvific, and is in fact a gift of the Father's love. Question 59's placement at the end of the Summa's discussion of the mysteries of Christ's life confirms that for Thomas, Christ's judgment in his human nature brings to completion the saving purpose of the Incarnation, to mediate between fallen humans and God. It is no coincidence, I think, that question 59 is structurally parallel to the last question on the Incarnation itself. Question 26 on Christ as our mediator. Question 26 completes a section on Christ's relationship as human with God the Father, his subjection to the Father, his prayer and sacrifice as priest, his sonship and predestination. All these make Christ our principal exemplar and mediator, through whom alone we are united to the Father. His judgment and purification of souls completes the work of mediation that he begins in each individual soul in baptism. When he conforms them to his sonship by grace, and that he continues in them through his body, the church. And as we've seen, because Christ is judged not only as God but in his humanity, he is a just and compassionate judge who has himself given us everything we need for salvation. We can only be judged as righteous at the last because he has given us a share in his own justice at first and pleads for us to the end. Without Christ's mediation and final judgment, in other words, we would have no access to the Father. Secondly, we should approach divine judgment with holy fear. But why do we actually need to be judged and purified in the first place? Although the primary purpose of judgment is salvific rather than punitive, secondarily, of course, it is punitive for those whose cooperation with grace has been imperfect or non-existent. It goes without saying, perhaps, that Thomas, like all his contemporaries, had a deeper sense than many of us today, not only of human unworthiness to stand righteously before God, but also of the generosity of divine condescension in making it possible for any human to do so. In his sermons on the Apostle's Creed, Thomas underlines the salutary fear that should prepare us for the coming of Christ to judge with wisdom and power because while this life is the time for mercy, then his justice will be unbending. The wicked will see him as wrathful and fearful, while to the just, he will appear as sweet, delightful, and kind. Thomas, living in the century that produced the Dies Irae, is not at all troubled, as some modern theologians might be, that fear of damnation and desire for beatitude are defective Or self-serving motives for good behavior. Indeed, in his view, servile fear of punishment is praiseworthy insofar as it disposes one for penance that turns one back to God. The idea that Christ's mercy is exercised for us in this life and his inflexible justice in the next does not contradict the idea that he is a compassionate judge. Thomas says that God's mercy manifests God's goodness in that he bestows perfections to expel the defects that make one miserable. In this life, God shows mercy by offering through Christ the transforming help of grace with which one must cooperate meritoriously in order to reach the end of beatitude. In the next life, he mercifully mitigates the punishment justly imposed on sinners in purgatory and even on the reprobate. But after death, one can no longer repent or perform acts with moral value that would change one's judgment. Because separated from the body, the will is fixed. Standing before God in individual judgment, the time for meriting has come to an end. All that is left is the revelation of the truth. Judgment as an act of justice denotes a right decision about what is just founded on a correct discernment of the truth. Christ judges the dead with a simple unwavering discernment of the truth of how each has responded to his mercy and a compassionate remission of some of the punishment due. This judgment is profoundly personal. Those whom he judges worthy of entrance to purgatory will praise him for his justice and mercy. For in spite of all their failings, they have come there in a cooperation made possible by his gifts. Their liberation is certain. Like Israel, they have come forth from Egypt, chosen from the beginning to be holy and without blemish before him. To our generation, sometimes presumptuous about salvation, Thomas' teaching on the humble fear of divine judgment and the necessity of timely, and grateful cooperation with God's grace is, I think, a salutary reminder of God's transcendence and merciful condescension in bringing anyone to the gift of eternal life. Finally, Thomas's teaching gives helpful insight into the nature of Christ's judgment, that is, as final and perfect adequation to the truth. In this life, we should not judge rashly because we can hide our sins and motives even from ourselves. But God will bring to light all that has been mystifying, entangled, and obscure. Christ will judge and reward or punish by the rule of his own perfect truth in accord with exactly how much we are conformed to him. That is how willingly our lives have been ordered by divine wisdom, and therefore lived in accord with the objective order of justice. The order of justice is founded on God's causal knowledge of things, which establishes the truth of reality. Our attempted self-construction of any opposing reality is a futile attempt to live autonomously outside of that order, and can only end in self-destruction. In the end, we will all be conformed to truth, whether we like it or not. As fearful as this sounds, it should also be consoling for those who will have really sought to love and obey God in spite of every weakness and failure. Christ's judgment is a just reckoning of the whole truth of the moral condition they have forged by their own cooperation with grace, however fumbling, or their persistent rejection of it to the end. Our particular judgment and subsequent purification is the uniquely personal fulfillment of God's particular plan of providence for us. Our truth will be revealed with perfect clarity. If we have been conformed to justice, we will be judged with the judgment of reward and approval and will manifest and rejoice in the truth of God's goodness. Thomas also emphasizes the revelatory nature of the last judgment when every eye will see Christ the Word and his glorified humanity, and the truth of each life with all its circumstances and consequences, including all the effects our life has had on others, will be made known to all. Thomas underscores here, too, the ecclesial and corporate nature of this judgment. The saints, who have been most detached from earthly things, will judge alongside Christ. Perhaps one could say that this full and final revelation, giving complete understanding of God's plan of providence for the whole human race, not only completes the revelation of scripture and magnifies God's goodness, but also justly satisfies the natural desire for truth that underlies the Gnostic impulse, even for the wicked who will not have supernatural knowledge of God in the beatific vision. Conclusion. Thomas's insights offer help for a renewed catechesis on Christ's mediation in response to a postmodern tendency to Gnosticism and the neo Neo-Pelagianism that often accompanies it. I think Thomas also responds to contemporary concerns by offering a way of arguing, in principle, that to posit the need for mediators of salvation besides the word made flesh simply underestimates the universal extent of God's wisdom, justice, and love in Christ. There can be no other mediator and judge but the one who is truth itself, and who therefore takes into account all the circumstances of each life. And if truth discerns that the soul, in spite of all its frailty, has in the end still clung to God, it will be like Dante at the end of the purgatorio, remade as new trees are renewed when they bring forth new boughs, pure and prepared to climb unto the stars. For Thomas, Christ's judgment in his humanity is a gift of the Father's love. It is his crowning salvific activity as our mediator, head, and priest. The divine judge was begotten not to keep men away from the Father, but to give them access to him. Although we should tremble in holy fear, we should rejoice in hope because it is he, our friend, who is our judge. It seems that Thomas meditated on this often. His biographers record that when he celebrated mass at the elevation of the host, Thomas recited the last part of the Deum, with its creedal formula that praises Christ, who freed us by his incarnation and prays that he will come again as judge to bring his own if necessary, through purgatory, to glory. I will finish with his prayer. You, Christ, are the King of glory, the eternal Son of the Father. When you became man to set us free, you did not spurn the virgin's womb. You overcame the sting of death and opened the kingdom of heaven to all believers. You are seated at God's right hand in glory. We believe that you will come and be our judge. Come then, Lord, and help your people. Bought with the price of your own blood and bring us with your saints to glory everlasting. Thank you.